We're back in our Beyond Tulip study. Um, last week we talked about some history and some general principles. We talked about scripture and tradition and um, how those relate to each other. As well as confessionalism, why we hold to a confession of faith. We hit on that briefly. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to start by talking about worship. And I'm going to show this video. What we're about to watch is a video of a traditional Latin mass in Sacramento, California. Now, um, this is this mass was codified after the Reformation. It's called the Trinitine Mass, but it's indicative of the masses that were before. So there are like 14 or 15 different Latin rites that were in use in Europe, and then at the Council of Trent, which is 1570s, this is the one they said we're going to use this form. So here's just a sample of what church would have been like before the Reformation in Europe. So if you look at the, you have a sheet that says the Latin Mass. And where they are, they're at the Confession of Sin and Introit section right here. That's the choir singing, so the congregation's not singing. And you'll notice the priest, he's, he's praying, but he's facing the opposite direction. The, the congregation's behind him. And he's praying in Latin under his breath. So that you can't hear what he's saying. So the confession of sin, there is a confession of sin, but they do it quietly, and they do it in Latin, and so the congregation's not participating. And so your experience through an hour of worship like this, with the exception of uh, a couple of different parts, like the sermons in, in English, and in modern-day Latin masses, they come and take communion. In, in the Reformation, they would not have taken communion. They're Latin mass. But this would have been what the service was like for about an hour. And if you lived in a, a rural area, that's, that's good, Jeff. If you lived in a rural area, there wouldn't be a choir. So what you would do is you would go and sit in the church, and it would be really quiet, and the priest would face the other direction and whisper in Latin for an hour. Now, <laughs> that's not exactly worship by our standards, is it? And, and what was happening, there are different reasons for this, but um, one of the things that was required of, of priests, Roman Catholic priests, um, it's, was required of Roman Catholic priests up until the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s, is they had to say Mass every day. And so part of what, what happened because of that requirement is that the Mass developed in such a way that you didn't have to have a congregation with you. Because the priest was required to say it every day whether or not anybody was there. And so if you needed people to participate, if you needed a congregation to sing, if you needed a congregation to, to take communion with you, that caused some problems for your uh, daily requirement to do Mass every day. And so it also caused problems if you went to Rome and there's, you know, thousands of priests wandering around Rome. Um, there's only so many churches. There's only so many places you can do a, a church service. And so um, they would do mass, like, really fast. So they would mumble it really fast under their breath and try to get out as quickly as possible. And they would have people. The idea was that if you went to mass, you'd get an indulgence. And that's what Martin Luther did when he went to Rome. He went to mass constantly because you could just sit in the church. And they would do it so fast you could do, like, three or four masses in an hour and you'd get quadruple indulgences for the hour. And so the Reformation, for the average person in the Reformation, the first thing you would have experienced that was different was worship. So the, the worship service would have been like this, and if you're in a rural area, which most people were, it would, been, it would have been quiet. And then you turn around on one day, and this is famously Ulrich Zwingli uh, decided one day he was going to preach consecutive, consecutively through the Bible and sort of in Matthew 1. And so imagine coming to church that day, you're, you're kind of getting ready for the quiet, you know, Latin mumbly stuff, and then all of a sudden your preacher is preaching, and, you know, proclaiming the word of God, and reading it to you, and translating it for you, and he's asking you to participate, and all these things are happening. And so for the average person, the Reformation was first and foremost a Reformation of worship. And so that's how we're going to look at this. Uh, we're going to start by looking at worship, and then we're going to go to sacraments and salvation, because I think that's the way that most people would have experienced it versus and, and we get stuck in this, this line of thinking all the time where we think if we think the right thoughts then the right actions will come out and it's important to think the right thoughts it's important to believe correct and true things about god but just thinking the correct thoughts isn't going to change your life and it's not going to change the world it has to come out in the things we do and in our wills so um 
I've got an example of the Latin Mass for you. Um, you, like I said, you just that was they were singing the Kyrie, and so if you've listened really closely, you could hear them saying Kyrie Eleison, although they were saying it so slow that you probably couldn't tell that's what was coming out. If you listen to it at about two times speed, it's it's clearer. Um, and on the surface of this, which by the way, Kyrie Eleison means Lord have mercy, so it's a prayer of of mercy. So if you look at this this order of worship. Now, obviously, we wouldn't do the asperges, which is the first thing in, in the order of worship, and the priest does that in the back room. So he, he has prayers and ritual washings that he does before he comes out and does Mass. Um, but it's part of Mass, and it's in, included in the, the book. And it's divided into two sections, the Mass of the Catechumens and the Mass of the Faithful. And on the surface, there's not a whole lot that we would like, disagree with in terms of the elements of worship. So uh, they sing a psalm, they confess their sin, they sing some more songs, they pray, the collect is a prayer, that's 2F. They do some scripture readings, they do a sermon, they do a creed, and then, you know, the, the communion is, is very complicated, there's a lot going on, but it is communion, and so on the surface, there's not a whole lot in terms of the content of the Mass that we would disagree with. The, the main problem that the Reformation had with the content of the Mass was um, the fact that the, there was this sacrificial language uh, related to the Eucharist. And so the idea, this is not actually what the Roman Catholic Church believes, but it was the popular uh, view in the 15th and 16th centuries. Um, they've kind of clarified that and come to a different conclusion. I, I do think it's a change in doctrine, by the way, in the Roman Catholic Church. I don't think that they've always held to this, um, that there's one sacrifice for sins. But they used to believe that each Mass was a re-sacrifice of Jesus. And that each time you came to, um, each time the, the priest held up the, the host and broke it, that that was a new sacrifice of Jesus before God. And what you were doing when you came to Mass was you were um, doing basically what the Jews did in the temple. You were bringing this animal sacrifice, if you could be that crass, and he's atoning for your sins from the last week, right? Versus the idea that's biblical, that... that there's one sacrifice for sins. So th that's the context that um, they're coming out of when, when the Reformation starts. And that's the experience of most people. Um, but So the Reformers rejected that. And uh, you can go to your main notes now. This is just, I, I feel like this is an interesting thing to think about because we, we often don't realize um, how radical this change is. But it really was a, a big jump for a lot of people. So the Reformation, um, there's kind of a different, there's a, a, a broad variety of the ways that worship worked out in the Reformation. Martin Luther took that Latin mass, translated it to German, took out the objectionable stuff, and pretty much left it alone. Um, and if you go to a Lutheran church, you'll see some of this similar order, although I would have no objection to the way that they do church most of the time in a Lutheran church. Um, the Reformed, however, d decided to step back. By the way, the Anglican Church did a very similar thing, and they actually used, they didn't use the Roman Rite to write their liturgies, they used the Serum Rite. That's a whole other discussion. But Lutheran and Anglican are kind of one thing. The Reformed took a different approach. They said, we're not going to start from this Roman Mass, from this Latin thing. Instead, we're going to go back to Scripture, we're going to go back to the Bible, and we're going to think through what the Bible requires of us in worship. And so this is what's called the regulative principle of worship. And the basic idea is that we do in worship what God requires. And we don't do in worship what God does not require. There are several reasons for this, and you know we'll talk about some of the biblical reasons for this in a minute. Um, but one thing that I think that is, it's important to point out is that the regulative principle of worship protects the Christian conscience. So we believe that people have freedom of conscience to, um, we want to pr we protect the, the liberty that people have in Christ. And so you read 1 Corinthians, we're supposed to bear with, with the um, weaker brother. Um, we're not supposed to do things that other people think are sin. So if, you know, if your um, mom is a teetotaler, you don't go in front of her and you know, drink a, a gallon of wine like this. <laughs> so there are things that, um, the ways that we bear with, uh, the weaker brother. And so this is, this is that principle applied to worship. And um, for example, if I think that, um, now I do think this is, we shouldn't do this, but if I think that it's a sin to have drama in worship, right, like a, do a play instead of a sermon, right, um, my pastor shouldn't say, well, then we're going to do a play anyway, and then, you know, 
you, you can deal with that in your own heart, right? The regular principle of worship says we do what God commands, and because there's a biblical command, I can say to, to a person who has trouble with, um, with elements of worship, well, here's this, here's this element of worship in Scripture, and here's why we do it this way. Um, I can't do that with other things like a, a dramatic performance, which that, that was a problem. I, I use that example because that was a problem like 30 years ago. Um, people don't really do that anymore. But um, So we need to make sure that we're, we're worshiping God in the way that he prescribes. So I've pulled the definition from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21. So chapter 21 is of a religious observances in the Sabbath day. And uh, this is what it says. This is in context of a larger thing. This is just a couple sentences out of a paragraph. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited to his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or in any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. So we have these very clear parameters, and this is the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's what our church holds to. It's what your pastors and elders are, are held to. Um, and so this is, this, our doctrinal standard says, we only do in worship what Scripture prescribes. Um, Michael Farley, uh, Michael Farley is actually an EPC pastor in St. Louis, and he's a professor at Covenant Seminary. Uh, but he's kind of pulled three different threads of how this has worked out historically. So that principle is, is, is helpful, that we only do in what Scripture prescribes. We don't do extra stuff that Scripture does not prescribe. Um, in particular, that's referring to um, the, the most common thing would be the bringing of personal devotional practices maybe into worship. That there's, there's things that are appropriate in your devotional time at home that are not appropriate in public worship, for example. Um, but Michael Farley has, has kind of pulled these three threads out. Now, you'll notice, remember last week, we talked about Tradition 0, Tradition 1, and Tradition 2. And you'll notice that there's kind of a, a we can roughly map those onto these. So Tradition 0 is the idea that we work with Scripture by itself, and we don't consider tradition or history. Tradition 2 is the idea that Scripture and history are two different sources that we have to consider together. And then Tradition 1, which is the tradition that, that most um, Reformed people have held to, is that uh, tradition can inform us, history can inform us, but scripture is the norm and the highest authority that we have. So, you know, we, we, take, we take into account history, we take into account tradition, but it's not normative for us in the way that scripture is. And so I think we can roughly map these onto these three um, approaches to the regulated principle of worship that Michael Farley has um, identified. So first, the practice-oriented regulated principle of worship denies the use of anything in worship without explicit biblical warrant. This view, for example, does not allow the use of musical instruments because there's no explicit New Testament command for their use. They also would generally only have one scripture reading because they would say there's no uh, evidence for multiple scripture readings in the service. They don't like to use creeds or they wouldn't even repeat you know, the Westminster Confession of Faith that they hold to um, in church. And um, a lot of these churches that hold to this particular view would only sing psalms. So the strictest form of this wouldn't even sing other parts of Scripture. So there are other songs and canticles in Scripture. And in fact, Sunday we're going to sing the Magnificat, which is Mary's song. Um, and they would say, no, you don't even sing those, you just sing psalms. And so that's a very extreme view. And, and again, it's, it's coming out of this, this pastoral heart to protect the conscience of believers, but I think that it takes things too far. And so I would say that actually falls, kind of maps roughly onto the Tradition Zero thing. Um, now, at the same time, I would have no objections to worship that looks like this. If, if you know, we decided to start doing this, it, it wouldn't give me any heartburn at all, because it does, it does give people liberty to believe. Um, we're, not, we're not forcing anybody to do anything against their conscience in this kind of worship. Um, but I think that you're missing a lot in this kind of worship. The second one that he identifies, and this maps roughly under tradition too, is patristic ecumenical regulative principle, which sees scripture as normative for worship, but comes to conclusions about worship through the lens of the early church and other historical sources. So this really came into vogue like in the 60s and 70s, and that's when you started seeing, you know, these Presbyterian and Anglican churches do things like, you know, they'll have like candles all over the, you know, and, um, which... This church has done some of that, and I'm not saying that that's all bad, but um, they started picking up, and if, if you look at like the 1979 Book of Common Prayer, which the Episcopal Church uses, um, 
it's, it's kind of uncritically grasping onto old things, right? So this thing is really old, and the church in the fourth century did it, so um, kind of uncritically they say, we're going to start doing this. And I, I would argue that's the pitfall of this approach, that it, it becomes a, a historical reenactment. And you see this a lot, you know, there's, there's these Anglo-Catholic churches. There's one out in Mayhew, if you've ever seen that. But, um, and they're good Christian people, but they will do these, like, put-on airs, and you'll, you'll hear them use, like, accents and stuff. So you'll go into some Anglican churches, Anglo-Catholic churches, and, you know, you'll have a guy from Texas with a British accent because it's, it's, a, it's more a historical reenactment than it is lively worship because they're so committed to following history and so committed to following tradition that they, have, they struggle with kind of working out how, that, um, how to bring that forward into the modern day. And so the third approach, which I say maps roughly onto tradition one and the approach that I would argue for, is the biblical typological regulative principle approach. So we look at biblical models for worship, and we attempt to form liturgy in the context of our redemptive historical moment. And I've, I've said this before, but Christians live between Leviticus and Revelation. And so we don't want our worship to look like Leviticus. We don't want our worship to look exactly like the worship in Revelation. But we live between those things, and we, we want to see the, the through line between Leviticus, Leviticus and Revelation. We don't want to be extracted from the continuity that God has given his people. And so our worship should reflect where we are, and we take into account the history of the church. We take into the account the way the Holy Spirit has worked through the church's past, worked through the church's practices, including the Old Testament church, like the Confession says, the people of Israel. But we don't have to slavishly follow the things that they did, because we recognize that the church can be wrong about things, right? If we were going to slavishly follow uh, the way that the Western church has done worship for a long time, we would be doing stuff like, like we saw earlier, right? And so we don't want to be caught into this trap of old is better, you know, and history is, is always right, and we need to follow this tradition and, and history to the exclusion of biblical concerns and practical cultural concerns um, that, that we have to deal with. So at, at this point, does that make sense? Are there any questions or concerns here? Um, I'm going to make a case for the biblical typological view a little bit um, as we go forward because I, think it's, I, I do think it's the biblical way to do worship. And um, we're, we're about to do some Bible drill, so I hope you guys are, <laughs> are ready for that. Um, we're going to go all over the Bible um, to talk about how to apply this. But All right. So the regular principle apl- applied... I'm chewing on ice. Um, generally, the regulative principle of worship has applied to three different categories of the worship question. Elements, forms, and circumstances. And I've already kind of used this language. Elements are the things that we do in corporate worship. Examples are prayer, preaching, singing, and the sacraments. So um, there's actually a list of those we'll talk about in a minute in the Confession of Faith. So those are the the things. Forms are the way that we do those things. So um, people have different opinions on whether you should do prayer extemporaneously or whether you should write your prayers. And in this church, we do both, right? People have different opinions on whether the offering plate should be passed or whether people should bring their offerings forward. But that's a form that's not an element. So the offertory is the form. The way you collect it is... I've got that backwards. The offertory is an element. The way you collect it is a form. So you have elements, and elements take a form. And then you have circumstances, and these are the things that surround worship but are not strictly part of it. So examples include the time and place of worship. So whether we meet at 10, 10.30, 11, 9.30, 6 a.m., the Bible doesn't tell us what to do about that, which is I'm kind of hinting there. Circumstances are we're moving out in terms of biblical Stringent, stringency on that. So elements, the Bible is pretty specific about, and then as you move into forms, there's a little bit more leeway, and then circumstances, you have a lot of leeway. Um, the location of the choir, some churches have the choir in the balcony, some churches have the choir to the side, some churches have the choir where ours is. There's no biblical prescription for your choir must be in, you know, at the three o'clock position from the pastor or whatever. That's not, a, that's not in the Bible. Um, lighting, sound systems, things like that. Um, the Bible doesn't say anything about those things. 
Um, there is one thing, the Bible, the one circumstance that the Bible tells us we have to abide by, and that's that we worship on Sunday, and that's the biblical pattern that we worship on Sunday. And so, um, as far as I'm aware, I could be wrong, that's the only circumstantial issue where the Bible tells us, do it this way. So, that doesn't mean we don't have preferences, and, you know, we can have different preferences about how we handle, you know, some people like chairs, some people like pews, some people you know, like certain styles of music, but those are all circumstantial, those are not um, forms. <clears throat> so now let's, let's walk through each of those. Let's start with elements. Um, I've got the Westminster Confession of Faith 21, sections 4 and 5. Um, you'll notice they actually separate prayer out, and it's clear that the, the people that wrote this considered prayer super important, important enough to separate it out from the rest of um, the elements that they list. So they have a paragraph just listing a bunch of other elements, and then they have two paragraphs, which only put one here on um, prayer. But part of that is that um, prayer is communication with God. Prayer is talking to God. And that's ultimately what a worship service is, right? If you go to the, you know, an Episcopal church or an Anglican church, they, they call their worship services morning prayer and evening prayer, right? Because they're recognizing that this whole thing is a prayer service. So when we sing, we're praying, and there's, there's an Augustine quote that's not actually Augustine, but it's he, the, the, the person who sings prays twice because you're, you're kind of, it's an, a higher form of prayer. Um, we, we kind of preach through um, prayer. Uh, it's, it's God talking to us, and we're, we're in communication with him. When, when the word is read, that's a communication with God. And so worship is this dialogical thing. We're in a conversation, and that's why if you notice on Sunday morning, our worship, our worship service is very much structured in this back-and-forth kind of pattern. So, for example, we come in, we do a call to worship. God is calling us. That's responsive. We respond to the call of worship with a song, then we confess our sins, and then God gives us his promises, and then we respond with the doxology. And so this whole back and forth thing is happening in worship because we're talking to God. And worship, public worship, is the corporate prayer of the people. And then within that corporate prayer of the people, there's all these other things, public reading of scripture, sound preaching and hearing, singing of songs, psalms, and sacraments. <clears throat> You'll also notice, um, I was talking about this practice-oriented regulative principle. Um, that wasn't universal at the Westminster Assembly that wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith, but um, you'll notice that it doesn't say singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in the Confession of Faith. So it doesn't prohibit that, but it does, they've made a concession to that practice-oriented um, regulative principle that says only psalms. So that's why it says singing of psalms with grace in the heart instead of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Also notice that there's two categories. So it says, um, chapter, section 5 says, the reading of scriptures of the godly fear, the sound preaching, the conscionable hearing of the word, and obedience unto God with understanding, faith, and reverence, singing of psalms with grace in the hearts, as also the due administration where the receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ are all parts of the ordinary religious worship of God. So that's the first category of stuff that's part of the ordinary worship of God, and I would argue that we should be doing every week, right? That that's, that's what worship is defined biblically. And then it says, besides religious oaths, vows, solemn fastings, thanksgivings upon several occasions, which are, and there's several times and seasons, to be used in a holy and religious manner. So um, we have these things that were like, on Sunday, you've got to do these things. But Christmas, although we love Christmas, is optional, right? It's not biblically required that we celebrate Jesus' birth on December 25th, right? But it's, it's also, and again, this, this is a compromised document. There are people at uh, the Westminster Assembly that did not believe that Christmas should be celebrated because it's not biblical. Um, or it's not explicitly biblically commanded. Um, and there are people that did believe that you should celebrate Christmas and should celebrate what's called the Evangelical Feast Days, Christmas, Easter, Pentecost, Ascension Day, those things. Um, and so it's a compromise document that says special Thanksgiving days. And so if you want to do the same special Thanksgiving day for Jesus' birth every year, I guess you can. But, <laughs> um, and actually, our Thanksgiving day would have been fallen into this category for the Puritans who would have held the Western Confession of Faith when they came over to um, America. So there's two categories, prescribed elements of stuff we have to do, and then there's a permitted elements of things that we can do, but we don't have to. So let's look at, um, there's, there's five elements that I would say we have to have in every worship service, and um, we're going to go through these and, and look at the Bible and, and see where it says that. So uh, we're going to start, this is where your Bible drill starts, in James chapter 5. So uh, James 
is often considered like the wisdom book of, of the Bible. And he's talking about, in James chapter 5, um, what to do if you're suffering or sick or in need. And so James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, to back up a little bit, I think that it's obvious to most people that um, like prayer or the reading of the scriptures, um, singing, or things that are totally fine to do in um, a private context as well. Uh, and so I'm going to point to some things. There's, there's all sorts of exhortations in the Bible to pray, but I'm going to point to some things specifically that deal with prayer in the public uh, gathering of believers. So in this case, we're praying together. So confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Another place that I think is more obvious that this is happening in the, the corporate public assembly is in 1 Timothy 2. <clears throat> I probably should have marked these myself before I started making you all guys make you guys flip everywhere. But so first Timothy um, is written to we're actually gonna be in first first and second Timothy several times here. Timothy is a pastor, and Paul is telling Timothy how to, to run a church and how to be a pastor. So first Timothy two, one and two says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now, this is, if you read on, this is a public example of, you know, this is prayer in public. So, skip to verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, that women should adorn themselves in respectful apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and with gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. And so, fair warning, <laughs> uh, many of these passages about worship also talk about the way that women should behave in worship. And I'm not going to talk about that tonight, but these are some of the most difficult passages that, um, you know, this, verse 15, we'll, we'll read verse 15, and I'll just prove this to you as being a difficult passage. She will be saved through, the, a woman will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Now, we've got to do something with that passage. I have an opinion on it, but that's not the, the topic of tonight's discussion. If you're curious about that or want to know more, talk to me. We're going to turn to 1 Corinthians 14 later, which is about that. But um, as a similar, we encounter similar things. So, again, I'm not talking about that right now, but it's there, and um, I would in general encourage you to believe what the Bible says. So that's all I'm going to say. But the point is, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is talking about the corporate gathering of believers. And he's talking about um, the fact that prayer is, being, is happening in public, and he's, he's giving parameters for how to pray in public, in the public gathering of believers. Next, let's stay in 1 Timothy for now. We're going to go to the public reading of Scripture. So we need to be reading Scripture in church. Paul tells Timothy... In um, chapter 4, verse 13. Until I come, until I come to Ephesus, he's in Ephesus, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. And so he's saying, read Scripture, and he's saying, preach and teach in public. And this is part of the public gathering of believers that we read Scripture together. We also have a descriptive passage. If you flip to Acts 15, keep your finger in Timothy, but... Acts 15, verse 21. So they're, they're, this is the Jerusalem Council, and they're talking about how to integrate Gentiles into this new... Christianity was a Jewish sect. It was a, a sprouting off of Judaism. And they're talking about how to incorporate Gentiles into these Jewish communities that are forming around the gospel. Um, and this is... James speaking, who wrote the book of James that we were just looking at. And he says, verse, starting in verse 19, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, 
and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read in every Sabbath in the synagogues. And so James is appealing to this synagogue practice, and part of what's going on there is he's referring to the Noahic covenant, which you'll remember in Genesis 6 or Genesis 9, um, God says, don't eat the blood of animals. So don't, and he's getting at that there. And um, he's, that's one of the things that's being referred to there. And so he's saying that like, they should know these things. These are not like a high bar for Gentiles to come into the faith. And so, and they should know these things because Moses has been proclaimed to the synagogues in all these cities. And so the pattern of the synagogue is that the law is read every week. And so that pattern comes forward into the New Testament church it's less explicit in this passage, but in, in 1 Timothy 4, it's pretty clear there that that's what we're supposed to be doing. Next, preaching and, uh, preaching and hearing. So both of those together. If you look at 1 Timothy 4, 2. Excuse me, 2 Timothy 4, 2. 1 Timothy 4, 2 is about demons. So I don't think that's a... <clears throat> Start in verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God speaking to Timothy, and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And he goes on to give him more exhortations about how to handle that. But Paul is telling Timothy, you're a pastor of a church, here's what you do. Preach the word. Preach the word in your church. Again, that's a very explicit, clear command to do. But also, and this is interesting that the confession takes this route, we're supposed to hear the word too. And so this engages the congregation in worship. It's not just the pastor up at the front saying these things. We're actually supposed to receive the word, and that's part of worship, is the hearing of the word of God. And so if you flip to Hebrews, I told you this is going to be Bible drill. So <laughs> if you flip to uh, Hebrews chapter 4, this is just one example of this, and it says that there's many, many other examples. Um, But Hebrews 4, starting in verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news, the gospel, came to us just as to them, the Israelites. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And so actually, if you go, if you kind of read in detail on the Westminster Standards, you're supposed to receive the sermon as the word of God. Now, that doesn't mean you listen uncritically. But when the, when the pastor is preaching, uh, that's not the preacher talking. That's God talking to you, using the preacher as a, as a means of, of speaking to you. And so we're called to, by faith, receive the word of God from the, his appointed steward who is, who is preaching. And so there are other passages we could turn to, but that one um, is, is helpful for explaining the relationship between faith and hearing. So we talked about prayer, public reading, sound preaching. Now let's talk about singing. And I've already pointed out, um, since we're close, let's go to James first, James 5.13. Um, I've already pointed out how the confession actually just says the singing of psalms. Um, I would argue that that's tighter than the biblical witness gives us. So it's, it's a tighter restriction than, than the Bible says because... If you go to, um, well, let's start in James 5.13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Um, I don't have that in front of me. I believe that the Greek there is actually let him sing psalms, um, which is what the, the King James would translate it that way. But a, a clear passage, not that James is unclear, but is if we flip to um, either Colossians or Ephesians. I'm going to go to Colossians because I'm on that page. Colossians 3.16, so Colossians and Ephesians are very similar books. They're books that go together. Um, They're written to two different people by the same person, dealing with a lot of the same stuff. And this verse appears almost identically in both of them. But uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And so... Uh, singing, this is in the public gathering, we're supposed to be singing as part of our, our public gathering. And we're not just singing to God, we're, we're involved in the conversation with God. But as we sing, we're also talking to each other. And we're, we're the body of Christ and we're kind of coalescing together in song. Um, 
Notice it says song, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Um, they're exclusive psalmists, people that, that believe we should only be singing psalms. Take that to mean, he, th- say that he's referring to the book of psalms when he says psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's a longer argument um, that I'm not convinced by. But if you have questions about that, let me know. Um, but I would say this is clear evidence that we should be singing. We should be singing scripture, and that's a historical practice of the church. Um, and in fact, if you go to the early church, they basically exclusively sang scripture, not because they had any issue with other hymns or other songs, but because scripture is just really good and <laughs> it's good to sing. So, but we also, there are other hymns and, you know, as we develop our theology, um, for example, if we want to sing about the Trinity, um, then we need to, we need to pull from other things besides um, the Bible. Not because the Bible is deficient in that way, but because if we're trying to reinforce this idea of, and we're trying to admonish each other to believe in the Trinity, believe in, in the three-in-one God, there's no like compact language for that in the Bible that we can pull out and sing, right? And so we use these other songs, um, hymns and spiritual songs together to um, sing. That's repeated again in Ephesians 5. And so he's, he's telling, telling them there. There's also examples in Acts. People are always singing in Acts. That's how Paul and Silas escape prison. It's because they, they're singing hymns and... and um, I would, I would say, if you let me be a little woo-woo for a minute, I think Satan is scared of singing. Like, remember the walls of Jericho, right? So the walls of Jericho didn't fall down because the, the Israelites were really strong and had really big swords and, you know, could climb, could scale walls, right? And, and you know, were really good military people. The reason the walls of Jericho fell down was because uh, the people were singing, and so when we, when we sing in church, it's like a war cry against Satan. And I, I think that we, we've kind of missed the spiritual warfare thing because we're American and we're all, you know, we're all rationalistic and modern and stuff. And, and we miss the fact that, like, Satan is at work in the world. And he's, he's, he's bound up and he's, he's been limited by God. But he's, he's not happy with that and he's not done with, with his work. And um, when we come to worship together, it's, it's, a, it's a war camp. It's, it's not a, a nice little, um, you know, kumbaya session, right? <laughs> it's, us being, it's us being called forward and prepared to go into battle. And when we sing together, we're, we're arrayed, and this is the language of Revelation, we're arrayed like an army. And, and wearing, you know, in heaven we'll be wearing white, white robes, we'll be wearing uniforms, and we're, we're ready to go into battle. And I think we missed that. And I think if we, if we had that in mind, if, if, if we thought of you know, Satan wandering around in here and being upset by our singing, I think we would sing louder, you know. And so on Sunday, remember that Satan's listening to you and he's mad. So there, I think it's good to make Satan mad, but that's just me. So <clears throat> I don't have a verse for that. <laughs> but So singing is important. Singing scripture is important. Um... Um, we have biblical, explicit biblical commands to do it. Next, now this is, I personally think, and I, I will admit that I don't have as strong a case here, but I personally think that we should do the Lord's Supper every week. And um, clearly, we, we don't do that, obviously, but um, I'm just laying out what I think is biblical and do with that what you will. But uh, let's turn to Acts, and I'll show you a couple of examples of why I think we should do that. In Acts chapter 2, you have this is immediately following Pentecost. And you have the people um, who've they've just baptized 3,000 people. And then it, it, it tells what they did after they were baptized, after this huge evangelistic event. It says Acts 2 42. You're familiar with this verse, probably. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, whenever you see the phrase, the breaking of bread, that's usually a reference to communion in the New Testament, which is the same thing when you see, for example, Jesus feeding 5,000, and he breaks bread. That's prefiguring communion. So that language um, appears throughout the Bible, to reference communion. It's not just a, oh, we're going to eat a meal together. Although they certainly did that, and there was a, in the early church, there would have been a meal involved in church. It wasn't just, just the bread and wine. It would have been a you know, potluck, basically. Um, 
But that's a technical term in the Bible for communion. Um, again, I, I, wish, I should have brought a Greek Bible with me, but I can't remember what, what the actual word is. Um, but same thing, if you see Eucharist in the Bible, that's, that's what that's referring to. So when we, the, the word Eucharist means Thanksgiving. And so um, sometimes uh, I think that people think that Eucharist is like a Catholic word. It's not. It's a biblical word. It refers to communion. And um, we shouldn't have any problem using that terminology. And I would say we're, we're going to get into some form stuff in a second. I would say we shouldn't have any issue. Um, I, I, we, we often get scared of stuff because it sounds Catholic. And um, I would say if it's biblical, let's run with it. You know, If the word Eucharist sounds Catholic, then so be it because it's, it's a biblical word. And Now, I, I personally don't use that word very much. I'll, I, I generally say communion when I'm referring to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is another terminology that we can use. Um, but don't be scared of things that sound Catholic because if it's biblical, it's biblical. Um, that'll become important later too. So that's that's Acts two forty two. Uh, let's jump ahead to Acts twenty. So this is this is actually kind of an interesting story because um, they're they're gathered together for church, and what what you'll see in, in this part of my argument, what you'll see when they're doing this, they're gathering on the first day of the week. And this is a consistent pattern that they gather on the first day of the week and they break bread. And I would argue that by the time Paul's writing letters, this is the common practice of, of the churches, that they're doing this every week. But Acts 27, Paul or Luke says, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. So it's kind of a, on the first day of the week, when we were gathering together to break bread, it's like, you know, on Sunday when we went to church is kind of what he's saying, Right. Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now, this is a funny story. There's a, a young guy that thinks he's, you know, really strong, and he's, he's like, sitting in the window, and he falls and dies, and Paul resurrects him. But, um, and he gets forever um, immortalized in Scripture as Eutychius, the guy that fell to his death, because um, he fell asleep during a sermon. Now, um, uh, there may be more going on there, but this is a funny story. But the point is that they're gathered together on the first day of the week to break bread. 1 Corinthians also, skip, jump ahead to 1 Corinthians 11. We'll look at another passage in 1 Corinthians as well. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is talking about, he's, he's in a larger argument about Christian liberty. And so it starts all the way back in, in chapter 8 when he's talking about food sacrificed to idols. And you get the, the famous, do all things to the glory of God, whether you eat or drink, do all things to the glory of God in, in chapter 10. And um, in the second half of chapter 11, he's talking about um, the Lord's Supper. And most people, when they do the Lord's Supper, they, they use Paul's liturgical formula in 1 Corinthians, although that's not like required. You could use Jesus's or, or whatever. But this is kind of generally, this is what I was taught to do in seminary, and this is what a lot of people do. But if you look at uh, chapter 11, verse 18, it says, For in the first place, when you come together as a church... I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that you, um, those who are genuine, may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Um, so he's, he's, they do eat the Lord's Supper, but he's saying that it's not the Lord's Supper because you're doing it wrong. <laughs> but uh, the, the point is that they're gathering weekly, and the assumption is that they gather um, each week for, for communion. Now, I, I recognize it's not a rock-solid case, but... I would argue, and this is just something to think about, that that's, we should be doing communion weekly because that's the biblical pattern. So disagree with me. Ask me questions later if you want. But um, that's the, the short argument for that. Um, so th that's elements. Um, what, I, I basically wanted to give you an overview and justification of, of why we do everything. Um, and I hope that that's clear. I hope that makes sense. Are there any questions about that? Is there anything that, you know, I missed that you want to ask about or anything. So, okay. Well, let's talk about forms. So we've we talked about elements. Remember, we have elements, forms, and circumstances. Um, the Bible's tightest restrictions are on elements. And then when we come to forms, we have a little bit more leeway, and we're, we're looking a little bit broader at how to structure things. So the word that we use is liturgy. And again, that's another word that sounds Catholic, but it's a Bible word. Um, 
Jesus in Hebrews is called the chief liturgist or the worship leader. Or the, I think it's translated in the ESV minister, but the word is uh, liturgos. And the word liturgy means work of or for the people. So a lot of times it gets translated of the people and the idea is you're trying to encourage people to participate. And I'm cool with that. But it's, it also can be work for the people. So it's, it's kind of a both and. Um, the reason for that is that you see the office of overseer in the Bible. And that has its roots in a cultural office called the overseer who was in charge of overseeing the liturgy of the pagan temples. And so there, that's, there's other things going on there, but that's one thing. Um, and so the overseer or bishop, or in, in our context, like the pastor, is the person who facilitates liturgy. And um, ultimately what liturgy is, is the logical ordering of worship according to patterns that edify and engage the people. So um, we're not just doing worship willy-nilly, we're doing worship according to an order. And we're not going to finish this at all, so hold on to these papers. But... Um, Let's look at these, these next two scriptures um, just to justify this a little bit. So while you're in 1 Corinthians, let's go ahead to 1 Corinthians 14. Now, again, he's just gone through this whole thing. We're, we're on the other side of uh, 1 Corinthians 13, which is the, the way of love. Um, and he's, he's, he's the big problem in Corinth is they're just totally disorganized. And it's kind of funny. If you read um, 1 Clement, which is an, an apostolic father, Clement was um, an elder in Rome. And he writes a letter to the Corinthians, you know, 30, 40 years later. And they're having all the same problems. <laughs> they're, they're still a mess. And in fact, the, the problem that Clement is addressing is that they've actually, they finally got together and like got some, some leaders in their church and they kicked them all out because they did something they didn't like. So he's, he's encouraging them to, to correct it. But, um, so this is, this is Paul's summary of, okay, we've talked about all these individual issues. Let's summarize to talk about orderly worship. So, starting in verse 26 of chapter 14. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for the building up. If anyone speak in a tongue, let there be only two or three at most, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for, for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or, or, or are you the only ones that it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. So a couple things. I'm not gonna, another thing I'm not going to talk about is speaking in tongues. So if you have a question about that, you can ask about that later. Um, and again, there's the, one, the, the women thing is in there again. So again, if you want to talk about that, you can ask me about that later. But I, I read that whole thing because there's a couple of different things going on. Um, first of all, he's, he's recognizing that there are limits to worship, right? So worship cannot be a free-for-all. Because if it is, then there's, it's not edifying, and so his, his point is that worship should be something that lifts us up and edifies us, something that, that teaches and encourages and, and is sanctifying for the people. And if everybody is speaking in tongues and running around and prophesying all separately, you can't do that. And so let all things be done decently and in order. He also appeals to the practice of other churches. And so this is where we want to be in line with history and tradition without, without slavishly following it. But we want to be in line with what's gone before and with, in line with other, you know, other saints. So um, it, we can't take it on ourselves, for example, to totally rewrite the way we do worship, right? I think I've used this example before of, you know, uh, we do the Lord's Supper at the end, and I'll, I'll argue that we should do it at the end instead of the beginning of the service. But um, we don't, like, I, I guess you could. There's no, like, biblical, you know, mandate explicitly that says you have to do it after the sermon, but um, it would be inappropriate of us, just kind of of our own accord, to say, well, we're going to change the way everybody's done it forever, 
and we're going to do it a different way. We're going we're to start off with the Lord's Supper or whatever, you know. And now, um, and so there's an appeal to tradition, appeal to other churches that are doing this thing. And he's saying, all the churches of the saints, the women do this thing. Um, he also is saying that this order and this peace and this edifying nature of worship is a command of God. So uh, that's in uh, verse 37. So it's not up to us whether worship is, um, has an order or whether worship should be orderly or, and, and decent. No, God says, and, and Paul, is, Paul has done this a couple times in Corinthians. There are a couple times in Corinthians where he says, this is I, Paul, speaking, not God. And so he's saying this is a provisional command. In this case, he's saying this is a command from God for all time. And um, the command of God is that you do worship decently and in order. And so if we want to take that command seriously, and we want to think through um, worship in a way that honors God's command to do it decently in order, then we should, be, um, we should have liturgy, which is a, um, basically a pattern of worship that engages and edifies people in a logical way. Um, let's also very quickly turn to Romans. Romans chapter 12. <clears throat> So Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Um, I believe the King James says reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by testing, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, um, there's debates about how to translate the spiritual worship thing. Um, the Greek is liturgain logikos, so logical liturgy. And now that doesn't really convey what we're getting across. And um, a part of why it's translated spiritual worship is because um, the translators have said, well, we think that when he says logos, logikain, he's uh, referring to Jesus, the Word made flesh. And so he's referring to some higher order thing. And that's why it says spiritual there in the ESV, which is not a bad translation. I don't know that I would go that way. Um, but there, the word liturgy appears right there, right? The Logan King Liturgos. And it's, it's also alliterated, which is nice. I, I wish we could do that more in, in translation. But um, logical liturgy. And so Paul um, is referring to when we come together to worship, we are the sacrifice. And we'll talk about that more next week when we talk about the order of worship. Um, bring these back next week. We're going to do more Bible drill, but it'll be less flipping, and it'll be more kind of an order. And we're going to walk through next week the biblical order of worship that we see over and over again through the Bible. And I, I, I'll go ahead and say, I don't think that's the be-all, end-all of worship, but I think that it's compelling that we see this in all these worship services. And I would also encourage you to go home and, and kind of look at this, and if you have any, you know, debates or if you think I'm wrong about this, come tell me. So, um, if I'm wrong, I want to know. But um, any questions, comments, concerns at this point, besides speaking in tongues and women? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, let's pray together, and uh, we'll head out. Father, we thank you for your word, um, and we thank you for the ways that you've given us uh, revelation that regulates our lives. That, that teaches us how to live, that teaches us as a people how to array together in military might against the evil one. And we, we thank you that you've called us as your people uh, to be your soldiers, but that you've also called us not to be your soldiers uh, alone, but we stand behind Christ who, by his very word, can fell Satan. And so we ask that you would teach us to, to revel in that every Sunday when we come to worship. We you just to sing loud and sing joyfully and sing in victory over death and the grave and Satan, because we know that your victory has already been won. So we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.